What do you do when a trusted, faithful Christian leader lets you down big time? That's a question that people my age and younger are really having to wrestle through right now. Uh, some of your older can remember in days past when uh, celebrity teachers or people who were famous for preaching the gospel, some of them fell into disrepute and were revealed to, believe, revealed to be different kind of people behind the scenes than they were out front, or some of them fell away from the faith. And uh, what's happening now is a whole lot more of them are falling and quickly. Uh, so we have a generation that grew up, some of them looking to youth pastors and some of you looking to pastors and some of you looking to celebrity teachers uh, who then now in our adulthood we learn uh, were nothing like what they thought, what we thought they were. Uh, whether it be YouTube stars like, like Rhett and Link or preachers like Mark Driscoll and uh, some of us are just struck wrestling with this question. If this person or these people taught me so much about Jesus and made me so much of who I am, and now they're revealed to be somebody very different than I thought they were. Uh, that puts a bit of a spiritual crisis on you, right? Like, is this whole thing real? If he's not who he said he was, is Jesus who he said he is? Uh, this is, some of you can connect with this very much. Others of you can't and just need to know it's something our generation is going through. Uh, I had two professors in seminary that I really looked up to and wanted to be like because of their giftedness. Actually, a lot of professors, but two in particular that I thought, oh, if God would make me as gifted as these men, or one of them, if he made my proclamation of the gospel as powerful in other lands as with this man it has been. Uh, and then we learned that both of these professors behind the scenes uh, were doing wicked things uh, with women other than their wives. Uh, even illegal things, some of them. Um, and they were fired, and they deserved to be fired. And so I had to watch as a, as a young and, and growing man, man, if that guy that I wanted to be like isn't who he said he was, well, that, that makes you reset some things, doesn't it? Some of you have been through the same thing. Now, I say some of that this morning because we're going to read a story that's going to show us that that's not a generational problem. That's actually an ancient problem. Uh, the Old Testament is very honest when it records what our leaders have done in the past. And we're going to read this morning of perhaps the greatest king in all Israel, entrusted with the whole kingdom that grew and blossomed and flourished under his wise leadership, that had everyone eating out of his hands saying, oh, this king, we finally have the king we are longing for, who in the end of his life, uh, all of his sin caught up with him, he fell into idolatry and his heart left the worship of the Lord his God. And as we see that, uh, we're going to ask God through stories like that, when they happen in my life, when they happen in the Bible, are you trying to teach us something? Could it be that the Lord has allowed that to happen and wrote it down for our good? Could he mean good for us through that? And we'll find the answer to be yes there. We'll look at 1 Kings chapter 11. Uh, and I think we'll find that as the New Testament teaches, on one hand, these stories can be warnings to us, right? First Corinthians 10, uh, these things happened and were written down for our instruction that we may not sin as they did. We'll find warnings there. And we'll also find, as Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, that so many of these things point to him. We'll find that Solomon is about to show us how Jesus is a much better king. May the Lord, on one hand, warn us this morning of the dangers of sin. And may he, on the other hand, show us that he is a better king than Solomon was. Let's read 1 Kings chapter 11. 
Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, and neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Anamites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord, as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel who had appeared to him twice and who had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and I will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all of the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. The words of the Lord. Through these sobering words, the Lord warns us against the power of unchecked sin in our lives, against the allure of sensuality to draw us away from the faith. And against the power of sin to draw us away, even in old age, uh, he also places in our hearts a desire for a better king, which will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ himself. Now, if you're just joining us, you should know that we're in the middle of a series going through First and Second Kings. This is a series that is in keeping with a Bible reading plan many of us in the church are doing. And so it will feel like we are skipping through First and Second Kings uh, up until about Thanksgiving this year. First and Second Kings tells in two volumes the story of Israel's fall from their golden age under King Solomon all the way to the terrors of deportation in the exile in Babylon. And it does that because it was written to an audience uh, after enduring that exile who were either looking around at this foreign kingdom that they were held captive in or at this broken Israel that they were able to go back to, but it was all broken down in ruins. And they were asking, if God had made all of these wonderful promises in the law to us, how did we get to this mess? And the books of First and Second Kings answer that with literal history. Here's, here's how we got there. Here is how things went wrong. This story here is where the narrative turns. Uh, up to this point, it's been the golden age of Solomon. Things have been wonderful. He has been wise. There's gold everywhere. It, things are great for Israel. 
And now we read of the beginning of the descent. We are over the peak and things begin to go down. A reader in that day might be filled with two longings as they read this. One, they would look and see what Solomon did and they would say, oh, I hope I never do anything like that, right? How do I make sure that I don't fall the way that Solomon fell? That'd be the first longing in their heart. And the other would be, since this king had let them down and they had suffered so much because of this king's failing, they would look and wonder, will there ever be a good king to come? Will we ever have a faithful king that keeps the covenant all the way to the end that we can trust in? And to those great desires, the Bible gives great answers. We'll examine the story and we'll look to fulfillments of both of those longings, both the warning that we need not to fall like Solomon did and the picture of the better king that we have in the New Testament, Solomon's better son who comes after him. So what we'll do first then is we'll look at some warnings that this text gives us. And warning sermons are, well, they're tough to preach, but having heard a few myself, they're even tougher to hear. And so I've got my work cut out for me this morning. You guys have really your work cut out for you this morning. And here's my encouragement as we go into it. The Lord indeed wrote these things down for our instruction, 1 Corinthians says. Uh, And that means the good shepherd who looks at us like his flock uses stories like this to address those little ways that we are all wandering away from the herd and wandering away from the flock to gently and yet firmly say, no, come back. Here we go. You've come back just a little bit. Come back here. All right. To to gently say to us, don't go over that cliff you're walking towards. You will die if you go over that cliff. My encouragement is if you feel the, the crook of your shepherd's hook just wrapping around you this morning and you feel his voice saying, come back, it's very natural to resist that. Uh, but friend, friend, don't resist it. We, we all wonder in many ways. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Uh, let's together let the Lord keep us back and, and prevent our wandering and bring us back into the fold. We have then three warnings that the Lord gives us from the story of Solomon, and then later a picture of a better king we'll look at. For the first warning, uh, we'll spend a little bit of time flipping around and arrive at it. And I want to ask the question that if you have ever seen a leader fall before, you have probably asked, and that is, were there warning signs, right? A lot of people are talking about Mark Driscoll right now and the big fall and scandal that he fell into. And one of the big questions is, were there warning signs? Should we have seen that coming out there in Seattle? Uh, let's ask that question of Solomon. Should we have seen it coming with King Solomon? That's because the author uh, tells us in two ways here that indeed we should have seen it. Uh, In verse 2, let's look at verse 2 together. We read about these many women that Solomon had engaged uh, as wives. And it says, From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Uh, This is a reference to a few places in the law where Israel, the whole nation, is forbidden from marrying women from these nations. Uh, Not because the Lord doesn't love interethnic marriage. He actually does love interethnic marriage, and there are several marriages like that that are lauded in the Scripture, Uh, one with a Moabite woman named Ruth, even. Uh, No, not for that reason, but because of worship. Uh, Women from other nations or husbands from other nations who worship other gods, he warns them, if you marry them, they're going to draw your heart after those false gods and you will leave me and I don't want you to leave me. 
And so he gives the warning here, and we're reminded of it. Now, if you do that, it'll, it'll turn your heart away, right? And we see in verse 9 as well, the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded them, him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. So here's a reminder. God appeared to him twice and told him not to do this, right? He's got the warning in the scriptures, and he's got God appearing to him. Uh, before we get to this first warning, I just want to follow this whole thing in the narrative because I think if we see it together, we will sense the tragedy in it. Uh, several warnings given to Solomon. One there in the law that we just talked about, right? If he seeks after foreign wives, they will turn his heart away from the Lord. He's warned there, right? If we turn back together to Deuteronomy chapter 17, uh, we will see three warnings given specifically to a king. Would you turn back there with me to Deuteronomy 17? And we're just going to look at verses 16 to 17. Now, while you turn there, I'll tell you this is the portion of the law that is addressed directly to the king. There are certain laws the priests have to follow, certain laws everybody has to follow. Here are the laws the priest has to follow. Deuteronomy 17, verses 16 and 17. Three warnings here. He must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. Okay, there's a first warning, right? Don't acquire a bunch of horses if you're king, especially from Egypt. All right, let's remember that. We're going to see if Solomon does that or not. Second warning, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. There's the warning repeated, right? Before it was foreign wives. Now it's many wives, right? Don't use your power to engage in mass polygamy like this, God warns. They'll turn your heart away. And then third nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So there are three warnings we need to remember as we read Solomon's life. First, he was not to acquire many horses, especially from Egypt. Second, he was not to take many wives for himself, especially foreign wives, or they would turn his heart away. And third, he was not to acquire excessive gold or silver. Now let's go through Solomon's life and see if the author sprinkles in little details like this throughout his whole life to tell us whether there were warning signs or not. Let's start at 1 Kings chapter 2. We'll go through several points here. And we'll read some of them. Some of them I'll just tell you about and you can see there. There. Some of you may wonder, why would we flip this much? It's because I want you to see what this author is. I want you to take my word for it. I want you to see it. So in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, David, Solomon's father, is, is both dying and handing him the kingdom. And he's giving him his last advice. And the advice in verses 1 through 4 is you need to make sure you keep the Lord's commandments. We can see toward the end of verse 3, uh, walking in his ways, keeping his statutes and his commandments, his rules, his testimony, as it is written in the law of Moses, which is what we just read from, that you may prosper in all that you do. Okay, so Solomon has these three warnings in the law, 
And he's got his father on his deathbed urging him, keep that law that is written down. Right? This is a good setup, a father who is urging you with his last words to follow in the Lord's ways. Solomon's throne is established after David gives him some political advice. We see that in the last verse of chapter two. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. And now we get to see what Solomon begins to do now that he is king. What is the first thing he does? Chapter three, verse one. Let's look there. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David. So his first act after he's been solidified as powerful king is disobedience to one of those warnings. Takes a foreign wife. Well, let's keep going and see what happens. The Lord appears to him next. And in verse 14, the Lord gives him a a stern, uh, a solemn warning of hope. If you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandment, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Okay, so now he's got the written law. He's got his father on his deathbed urging him to keep the law, and God himself is appearing to him, urging him, keep those commandments, right? Not many people get a setup like this, right? Now let's turn to chapter 4. And look at verse 26. We start to see all of his wealth listed in the second half of this chapter. And verse 26 says, Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Remember the warning? He shall not acquire many horses for himself. How many does Solomon have? 40,000 horses. I was with, some of you guys were with me when some of the seniors, we all went to the Ray Skillman Museum a few, about a month ago. And uh, Ray Skillman has a hundred, about a hundred or so classic cars there. And we all walked in, and some of you remember, we, wow, this is impressive. This is incredible, right? That was maybe a hundred for those of you that saw that. Can you imagine 40,000 horse stalls? full of the finest horses. This is what Solomon had. Talk about excess, 40,000. Now in chapter 8, God appears to him again. And for sake of time, I won't read this one, but basically the Lord urges him the same thing, right? Uh, Actually, chapter 8 is um, Solomon's prayer. I got 8 and 9 mixed up. Solomon prays to the Lord, and let's look at chapter 8, verse 25. This is Solomon dedicating the temple and praying to him. In verse 25, it says, Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David my father what you promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. So this urging that Solomon must keep the commandments, he's even putting it in his prayers, right? He knows that he is supposed to do this so much that it is in his prayers, but is he living it? No, he's not living it. In chapter nine, the Lord appears to him a second time and essentially says the same thing. Keep my ways, follow my ways. But then beginning in verse 11 of chapter nine, we start to see how much gold is being brought to him. In verse 11, Hiram, king of Tyre, supplies Solomon with cedar, cypress, timber, and gold. How much gold? As much as he desired. 
We see at the end of verse 13, I'm sorry, in verse 14, just how much it was. Hiram had sent the king 120 talents of gold. Friends, that is 9,000 pounds of gold. What is gold worth? Maybe 2,000 an ounce right now? 9,000 pounds of gold. What is it? 1,600 an ounce right now. 9,000 pounds of gold going to him. And we see this add up in verse 14. You can see that in one year, he was given 666 talents of gold. A talent is 75 pounds, if you want to try to do the math there. In verse 16 and 17, you see that he made many hundreds of shields of gold, each with multiple pounds of gold. In verse 18, the throne is overlaid with gold. And then in verses 21, 22, and 25, more gold, right? Gold upon gold upon gold. What was the warning? He shall not acquire excessive gold and silver, right? And this reaches ahead in verses 28 and 29. This, I think, is the most ironic part of the whole thing. Solomon's import of horses was from where? Egypt. Where was the one place he was told not to go and get horses? Egypt, right? So we have warnings. Don't acquire many horses, especially from Egypt. What did Solomon do? He acquired 40,000 stalls of horses, and it looks like he got a whole bunch of them from Egypt. We have a warning. Don't acquire excessive gold and silver, and I don't know that I've ever read about this much gold in one chapter or in one book in my whole life. We have a warning. Don't acquire or don't, uh, don't take for yourself many foreign wives, right? And what does Solomon do? We read in chapter 11, 700 wives and 300 concubines. This is a man who, for a 40-year reign, did not heed the warnings of God. So that means this storm that comes here in chapter 11 is not a sudden tornado that comes out of a sunny day. No, this is many storm clouds that have been gathering over his whole life and finally now, in one moment, break. The author calls attention to that, as I pointed out earlier in verses 2 and in verse 9, pointing out God had said not to do this, right? And he did it anyway. And so there we find, I know we built up to it for a while, but there we find our first warning. If we do not listen to God's warnings, sins left unchecked have a way of catching up with us. Christian, your sin will catch up to you if you leave it unchecked and ignore God's warnings. This is a warning every Christian must hear. One way to look at Solomon's story is as a clinic on how to mess up a good thing. Solomon had a good thing, perhaps the best of lots ever handed to anyone. And at the end of his life, he fell away and ruined the whole thing. How do you do that? Well, one way you do that is you let sins that feel small take root in your heart and refuse to confront them over years and decades. I'll give you a couple of metaphors here about how to think like this. Those those sins that we love to just let go in our hearts, right? Bitterness, uh, covetousness, uh, gossip, grumbling, lust, any of these things that we kind of say, well, I do this a lot, but I'll just forget about that. Those kind of sins. You could think of them as seeds if you want to. It often feels like they're, you know, they're very small, not a big deal. It's just, you know, pebbles that I'm just throwing on the ground. You know, what's the big deal? It's not going to hurt anybody. But friend, they're not pebbles. They are, they are seeds. They are seeds that will take root in the ground and they will 
bloom and blossom up into something that is much greater. If we let things like this take root in our hearts over years, over decades, there's no telling what they may become in later years. Now, they tell preachers not to mix metaphors, and I'm about to do it, so you can just pick one metaphor or the other, okay? Another way you can think of this is like fire, right? What's, what's the harm in a little, little candle fire, right? Very little harm, unless it grows into something much bigger, which it can do very quickly. All right, so what's the harm in a husband checking out other women now and then? Right, just a little candle flame here and there, no big deal, Right? But how many men have done that over the course of years and decades and never addressed it and then surprise themselves when one of those women looks back and they suddenly commit adultery against their wife? Right? What's the harm in a little candle flame except that it can erupt into something much bigger? Think of it as seeds or think of it as a candle flame. Either one, don't let it take root in your heart. Don't let it sit there. If you have a good marriage, how do you ruin a good marriage? Well, I'll tell you one way. Let the seemingly small sins that you commit against your spouse go unchecked. Let, let bitterness just take root in there for a decade and see if your heart toward your spouse doesn't, doesn't sour over the years. Right? Keep... Keep looking at those other women and see if your heart towards your wife doesn't, doesn't run astray. Right? Can, continue to look on Instagram and see the other people that are living happier lives than you're living and wishing that you had their happiness and see if covetous doesn't take root without you checking it and without stopping it. Now, married people sin against each other, right? Amen? Right? Yeah, we do. That, that's reality. Marriages fall apart when we let our sins go unchecked, when we do not fight our sins. And so the warning that Solomon gives us here is don't let those sins go unchecked. Don't let them just go on for years and for decades because they will at some point catch up with you. Now, some of you might, might even be thinking now of something the Lord is convicting you of. Oh, I have been guilty of whatever for years, and I need to, what do I do, right? What do I do with what my pastor just told me besides feel bad, right? What do I do? Here's what you do. First, if you're caught in sin before the Lord, deal with it by confessing it to him. Just look right up to him. If he says it's wrong, tell him you did it, and tell him that because he said it's wrong, it's wrong, right? Agree with him that it's wrong. That's called confession. Do that first. Then, just cling to the promise of the gospel of Jesus. We looked this morning at Romans 8.1. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That means if you're a Christian, you cannot be condemned for those sins. Uh, so just rest your heart in that. There's no reason to fear. There's no reason to be afraid because you have forgiveness at the hands of Jesus. And so now, confessing your sins to God, being honest and straight with him, rejoicing in the gospel, now resolve to fight for holiness. Now ask, okay, what do I need to do to make, not necessarily to make amends, but to make sure I don't ever fall into this sin again? Confess, rest in the gospel and then fight for holiness. That's what we must do. What we cannot do is say, eh, that's what we want to do, right? Eh, there it is. Don't know what to do about it. 
Just let it go. That's what Solomon did, and that's how he fell into everything he fell into. That's our first warning. Unchecked sin has a way of catching up with you if you don't listen to God. For the second warning, we want to look particularly, now there are several sins he fell into, right? Greed, probably pride, sensuality. Was there one in particular that turned his heart away more than others? Let's ask that question as we look at verses 2, 3, and 4. He loved many foreign women, right? And the Lord had warned them, you shall not enter into marriage with them, and neither shall they with you. For surely they will turn your heart after other gods. Solomon clung to these in love. Then we read of the just incredible number of wives, 700 wives, 300 concubines. And then we read what happened. His wives turned away his heart. For emphasis, it's repeated, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. What, in the end, what, what really got to him and turned his heart away? It was the sensual lifestyle that he led. Right? This is a man who was overtaken with sensuality. He clung to these wives in, in love, it says. This is a man who, at one point in his life, had 299 of the most beautiful women in the world as his concubines and still went for a 300th. Just to give you an idea of the sensual lifestyle that he led. And just at risk of being too direct here, knowing there are all ages in the room, uh, the way the narrator is framing this is that what really did him in was his intense desire for sex. That's what did him in. And we have there a very serious warning as well. That's a good gift from God, right? But beware the power of sensuality to overcome the heart and lure the heart away from God. The full testimony of the Bible is that sex between a husband and wife is a good gift, a very good gift. But that desire can overtake you and has led many into sin before. And so in as much as we receive the gift from God, those of us that are married, we also must guard our hearts against its power to lure us away and destroy us. Here's one way that, that I could say that. The reality is that the gift that God gives us in, in married sex, uh, some enjoy it and, and some don't enjoy it all that much, right? Uh, that's just real world there. If you're one of the people who enjoys it and desires it, or if you're single and thinking, I would, I would love that. I wish God would give me a spouse so I could do that. That's not bad. That's good. But you need to know that your enemy, Satan, knows that you enjoy sex. He knows that you desire sex. And he stands ready to use that to destroy you. Now, again, this doesn't mean it's bad to enjoy, right? It's a gift from God, but it does mean you must stand on guard and you must be aware that your enemy prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Friends, he is, he is after you and we must stay on guard against him. I'll tell you a story where this very thing happened. Uh, a man that I just loved and admired was led away by the power of sensuality. Um, was once part of a church where there was a, a man who we just 
celebrated so much because he handled his sorrow in such a godly way. His, his wife had left him uh, and, and she was very much at fault and he was not in the whole thing. And he was heartbroken, uh, as you can imagine. And he just took his sorrows to the Lord and, and walked in faithfulness, as best as any of us could tell. And man, we were so glad to see him do this. And then, because the Lord had been there for him and had been a help to him in this time, uh, he began with great zeal to gather other men together in the church to study the scriptures together. Uh, and it wasn't one of these deals where he had this, you know, super charismatic personality and he says, I'm going to study the Bible. There's 500 people there. Just regular guy, loved the Lord, drew people together. And within a year or two, 25, sometimes 30 men there in a, in a church. It wasn't a huge church. Studying the word of God, having a good time together, forming good manly friendships together. So we're celebrating what the Lord is doing with this man. I'm going to call him Jeff, but that was not his name. Uh, and then he met a girl, and everything changed. All of a sudden, the, the guys in the Bible study started coming and said, hey, Jeff hasn't been there in like a month. Anybody know, anybody know where he is? And our, our pastor went and sat down with him and uh, said, hey, like, we haven't seen you in church. We haven't seen you in Bible study. Like, are you sick? Are you okay? What's going on? Uh, and he said to him, oh, I met a girl, and she's wonderful, and we're going to get married. I just, I can't wait. Um, and so they talked for a while, and it became very evident this girl was not a believer. Uh, was drawing his heart away. Um, and so our pastor asked the hard question. He said, Jeff, Jeff are you guys in sin together? Um, and he hung his head, and he said, we, we've been living together for a month. Yeah, yeah, of course we are. And that pastor did the good work of gently confronting him, trying to bring him back in. Uh, within only a few months, he had completely left the church, severed all of the friendships in the Bible study, and even threatened to sue the church. He was so angry that his brothers would go after him and try to pull him back. This, this story, Solomon's story, just lives to you as a warning. That pull, that power, it's powerful. It can pull the heart away from the Lord. And all of our hearts are prone to wonder, so we must heed the warning and stand on guard against the power of sensuality. That's the second warning. Third warning comes in verse four. We simply ask, at what season of his life did Solomon fall away? And the answer is in verse four. When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away. And this is a warning that I will say less about because those of you that need to hear it, I'm less qualified to speak with you in any authority on it. The warning here is very simply, beware the power of sin to turn you away even in your last years. Or if I could say it differently, oldest Christians, guard your last years. It'd be tempting to think that after 50 years of faithfulness, maybe I can let up a little bit now and I can just coast on the momentum that I had. No, no, let, let Solomon live to you as a warning. No, we must pursue holiness all the way to the end. Don't run 26.1 miles, oldest saints. Run the whole marathon. And if I can speak personally to it, this is not from the Bible, this is just me, um, you know, having seen many people that I look up to fall away, most of them in the middle of their life, not even at the end of their life, uh, let me tell you one of the most encouraging things for me personally. Uh, it is when I either get to preside over or be present 
at the funeral of an older saint who has stayed true all the way to the end. Something about that as a 39-year-old man who looks up to people who have fallen away and said, oh man, if, if they weren't who they said they were, is Jesus who they said they were. Then I can look at someone like another professor of mine whose funeral I just went to and say, well, if God kept him all the way to the end, he can keep me all the way to the end too. How many funerals have we shared together right here? And we can say it together, if God kept him, if God kept her all the way to the end, oh, he can keep me too, right? Those of you that I get to do your funeral, would you allow me to say that? Would you hold true all the way to the end so that we can celebrate together and say, if God kept him, if God kept her all the way to the end, he could, he could take us all the way to the end too. We need you. We need your example of following through all the way to the end and running 26.2 miles in your marathon. That's all I'll say on that. Guards your last year's oldest saints. All right, before we move on to the other side of this, which we'll spend less time on, uh, I, I talked a little bit earlier about uh, those of us that have looked up to leaders who have really let us down, right? That's happened a lot to people in, in my age group, younger. Uh, and if that is you, I just want to speak to you a moment because I think that what Solomon does here helps to speak to us as well. Now, as we look at Solomon, what we see there is that yeah, he let the kingdom down, and that's a big problem. But that's not our biggest problem, is it? Our biggest problem is that the sin and desires that lived in him live in us too, right? And the biggest threat is not that someone might let us down one day the way Solomon did, but that we might fall into the same sin that Solomon fell into. Now, that speaks a word to those of us who are looking at the Mark Driscolls and the Perry Nobles of the world and saying, well, what's going on here? And try to make sense of this spiritual crisis some of us are going through. Uh, those problems are all real, right? And that pain is all real. But here's what I want you to see from it. If you're wrestling through that, your biggest problem is not that your leader let you down. Your biggest problem is that the same evil that lived in him lives in you. And the same enemy that was prowling around after him is after you. Now, the good news is that Jesus is faithful. He's a good shepherd, but you must lean on him and confront the sin in your own heart all the more vigorously as you see others around you fail. Let's move on to our last point. So I said earlier, there would be two longings on the heart of someone who read this story. First, how do I make sure I don't do what he did? The other one would be, will there ever be a king who doesn't let us down, right? Solomon is the first in a string of many kings who let Israel down. And what we see in the second paragraph of this chapter, verses 9 through 13, is that because of Solomon's sin, the whole nation suffers, right? part of us that probably doesn't like that, right? The Lord actually says, because this has been your practice, because you have not kept my covenant, I'm going to tear the kingdom from you. The kingdom's going to split. The whole thing's going to suffer, and the downfall's going to begin now. Not especially because Israel sinned, because Solomon sinned. And even worse than that, it's going to happen after Solomon dies. It's going to happen to his son. And then even more strange than this, because David was faithful, it won't be a total split and a total destruction. So can you see how the rise and fall of the kingdom of Israel is dependent on the behavior of the king? 
That's, that's the way that this, the covenant was structured. If the king was faithful, God would bless everybody. If the king was not faithful, uh, many curses that would fall upon them. Now, they also suffered for their own sin. There are a number of passages about that. But one feature of this covenant is that God represents the people, or I'm sorry, the king represents the people before God. And so the whole nation winds up suffering because of Solomon's sin. Now, if you read that as an ancient Israelite, you are thinking, oh, will we ever have a king who doesn't let us down, right? If we want to experience the blessings of these covenant, our king's got to follow through. And he's just the first of many who lets us down. What are we going to do? God, are you ever going to send us a king who is faithful? And that is where the story of the New Testament comes in and answers the deepest longings of our heart. Because the answer is yes, a good king does come. A king who is faithful comes. His name is Jesus Christ. He's the the son of Solomon, the heir of King Solomon. And consider all the ways that King Solomon fell. Greed, idolatry, sensuality, and not straying true to the end, right? Would anyone ever accuse Jesus of being greedy in his lifestyle? No. Jesus had the power to make gold coins appear in the mouths of fishes, right? And how, much, how many of those did he collect for himself and keep for himself? None. He's content to say, foxes have, dinned, foxes have dinned, the birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, right? The whole world rests on the shoulders of a homeless man, Rich Mullins once sang, right? Because he didn't have a home. This is not a man who fell to greed. Could you ever accuse Jesus of living a sensual lifestyle, right? King Solomon took 700 wives. Jesus was content with no wife, for his whole life. And not only this, but women followed him around, serving him, taking care of all of his needs, revering him greatly, and never once did he abuse the trust that these women put into him. Now, this is not a man given to sensuality. We read about him, we say he is different. There is something strangely different about him, something far better than Solomon. Solomon falls into idolatry in some of the worst ways. And Jesus hungry in the desert after 40 days of fasting has the devil appear to him show him the kingdoms of the world and say just worship me and you can have all of this jesus says be gone satan it's written you shall worship only the lord your god him alone shall you serve here's the one that doesn't fall into idolatry when tested and here's the best part yes solomon fell in his later years he did not make it to the end right But church, we have a king, we have Jesus Christ, who in his last day was hung up on a cross, suffering far worse than Solomon ever did, right? And when he was pushed to the limit, when he was tested all the way to the end, he would not belly flop at the last second. No, he would cry out, it is finished. There's our king who ran 26.2 miles for us. There's our king who finished the race for us. Now, part of the meaning of that for us is if the nation is blessed by the obedience of the king, there's a picture of the king's good news, right? If, if you're willing to come under King Jesus and worship him as king, your status before God is based on your king's conduct. His obedience earns blessing for his people. 
And that means you can choose. Most of us want to live like our own king, right? We want to do life our way. That's the American way, right? I did it my way. We've been singing that for 100 years now, right? And if we do that, we go and stand before God on judgment day as our own king. And we answer for our own sins, and we will be judged fairly for everything that we have done. And friend, I want to tell you this morning that you don't want to do that. You don't want to go before God and receive a fair and just verdict for everything that you have done. Now, here's what you want. You want to go before God under a king and have the judge look to you and say, well, was your king faithful? Did your king keep the covenant all the way to the end so that you can answer, yes, my king kept the covenant all the way to the end because our king's obedience earns blessing for his people. So that's my last call to you this morning. Place yourself under that king, under Jesus Christ in faith. His death is more than enough to cover all of your sins. Would you turn? Would you put your trust in him and bow to him as king? All right, let's pray together. We'll have a prayer of commitment. The Lord may have moved your heart this morning to make certain commitments, and we'll give you a chance to do that. When we're done, we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together as well.